I'm not one who likes musicals. I don't, now, I have a son, actually, who's in a musical. He's, he's working on Rent right now, and he was in Big Fish in the fall. So Cooper really likes musicals. And um, I like Les Mis. And the difference, the reason I like Les Mis and I don't like most musicals is I don't like musicals where they say something and then they break out into song to sing about what they just said. I don't like those. Because that just seems so unrealistic and so silly. But Les Mis, they sing the whole way through, so that was nice. I like that one. Um, I know. I'm kind of a crotchety old man already, I suppose. But even when I was your age, I didn't like musicals. Um, but here's what this text is hinting at. That's, that's really a powerful idea, is that um, musicals, in a sense, even what I don't like about them, where you see something, you say something, and then you just want to break out into song about it, like there's something about that joy or that sorrow, but particularly tonight, that joy that hints at an ultimate reality for those who know God, a taste just a taste of that ultimate reality. Because God reveals himself as one who when he thinks about his people, he rejoices over them with singing. He breaks out into song because of his strong, passionate even, love, as we're going to see in this passage. Uh, he's just giddy about his bride. There's no other way to say it. And we looked at this a little bit last week from Hosea, the way, um, if, if you weren't here for the convo, we looked at a passage in Hosea where God is kind of talking about his people, his wayward people who've turned away from him to other lovers. And then he kind of talks about how he's going to redeem them and restore them. And then he talks about, oh, don't you remember the good old days in Egypt? And you're like, what? Like in Egypt, God's people were like saying, what, do you bring us out into the desert to kill us because there weren't enough graves in Egypt? Like, that's the kind of stuff they were saying. But God looks back at it and says, remember the days when our love was new and pure and beautiful. There's something, there's something about that, something about that image that God uses all these different ways to try and get our hearts around. Now, I'm going to ask this question at the end, but I, I think it's worth asking at the beginning as well. If you really think about what God thinks about you, when he thinks about you. I don't want like the church answer, and I'm not going to ask you to spell it out, but I want you to think about, if you're honest, if you're really honest, what does God think when he thinks about you? Is he disappointed? Is he frustrated? What does he think about when he thinks about you? It's really one of the most important questions you'll ever ask yourself. But there's a second question that's probably just as important. Why does he think what he thinks about you? So what does he think about you and why? God seems to care a lot about that, about the way we answer that question, because he gives us passages like Zephaniah chapter 3. So let's read it. We're going to start reading it, verse 9, through the end of the chapter. For at that time... I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. 
For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. Literally, hang limp. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in. At the time when I gather you together. For I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your very eyes. Says the Lord. Let's uh, pray and then we'll dig into this, this beautiful and powerful passage. Lord, we do thank you for all the I wills, not only in this passage, but throughout the Bible. And we thank you, Lord, that when you make a promise, you keep it. And though, Lord, we live in the middle of the already and the not yet. We live in the middle of the day when Jesus lived and died on a cross. And yet we live before the day when all things are made right. And yet still, Lord, we thank you for the I wills that you speak over your people. We pray, Lord, that you would um, help us to exult over you and want to burst out singing as this passage goes deep into our hearts, even through the foolishness of preaching. And to that end, we ask you to send your spirit to help us. In Jesus' name, amen. So... A pretty simple kind of structure outline to this tonight because I, I want to just kind of get into the various pictures that are here. Um, the gospel is bigger than you think and it's better than you think. And what difference does that make? That's what we're talking about tonight. So the gospel is bigger than you think. And now here when I say you, I, I don't mean to make assumptions that may not be true, but I've been around evangelical Christians for a long time and generally when they think about the gospel, most evangelical Christians think of it as a personal salvation story. And honestly, the Bible rarely speaks of it that way. Not saying that there's not an important um, truth and even theme in the Bible, 
of God redeeming individuals, saving them. But the Bible speaks of a much bigger story when it speaks about God's purposes for the world. Salvation is not just an individualistic, me and Jesus story. When you come to the Bible, particularly when you come to the prophets, the prophetical books, you, you see these pictures, these grand visions of what the Lord will do. And so it is here. Now, the reason this matters is if you have a gospel that's too small, the chances are you have a God that's too small. Because if you think that when the Bible talks about the gospel, all it's talking about is how individuals can accept Jesus into their heart and make sure they go to heaven when they die. If you think that's all the Bible means by gospel, then you probably also, without realizing it, think that that's the only thing God cares about and thus the only thing that God's people should care about. And that's a problem. So you see, so many of the problems that we look at, we're like, the church doesn't care about injustice. The church doesn't seem to care about the poor and all these things. It ultimately connects to what they think about the gospel. They think it's just about me and Jesus, which is a way of saying, well, that's all that God cares about, and that's all he's interested in, and then why should I be interested in anything else? It's important that we have these pictures in the Bible, like this passage, that show us that the gospel is so much bigger than that. It's not less than that, but it's bigger than that. So let's look into it. Verse 9. It's an interesting phrase here. At that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. What is that talking about? Do you remember this story in the Bible back in Genesis where God confused people's speech and people's tongues? Do you remember that? It's the story of the Tower of Babel. And do you remember what was going on there? God's people or the people of the earth, were uniting together to basically reach God on their own. They were going to build this tower and be able to reach God on their own. The ultimate in hubris. This passage talks about haughtiness. It's the ultimate in haughtiness, thinking we can do this on our own, particularly if we join together and we work together. So what does God do? In his grace, and you need to understand it's grace, it's not God feeling threatened, but God in his grace says, I won't allow you to unite in that way. Similarly to how in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sided with Satan, God comes and says, I'm not going to allow that partnership to remain. I'm going to put enmity, warfare, between the woman and the serpent. Even though you tried to make peace with the serpent, and warfare against me, I'm going to change the teams by my sovereign grace. And so he does in the Tower of Babel. But God, even though he scattered the peoples and confused their languages at Babel in his grace, he still, he still wants all peoples from every race, tribe, tongue, and nation to be gathered together, to join together, to worship and serve him forever. And that's what verse 9 is talking about. The, the language here, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, is talking about the reversal of the Tower of Babel. And actually, it happens in two stages as the Bible story unfolds. The day of Pentecost is the reverse of the Tower of Babel. It's not just a cool story about how God's Spirit made people talk in languages they didn't understand. 
It's not a story about that. that. Again, that would be seeing it too small because you're not seeing the narrative arc of the Bible. What has happening on the day of Pentecost is the Spirit is now uniting where God had confused. And what's interesting is the way tongues show up in the book of Acts. And you can check this out if you want. I hope you will. Not everybody that gets converted and gets the Spirit in the book of Acts speaks in tongues. Do you know that? It happens to each distinct group. So there are some people who have been apostles or disciples of the apostle John, or sorry, John the Baptist, but they don't even know there is a Holy Spirit. It happens to them. It happens to the Gentiles at Cornelius' house. And when the disciples, when Peter goes back and reports to the other disciples, what do they understand has happened? What they understand has happened is the Spirit fell on the Gentiles just like it happened to us on the day of Pentecost. Therefore, they must be part of the church. In other words, the tongues function and acts as a uniting element, even though in our church today a lot of times people divide and argue about it. But the way it is in the book of Acts and the way of the day of Pentecost, and the Pentecost literally is first fruits. It's the festival of first fruits. And God shows this is the first fruits, the down payment, if you will, on this promise that I made through Zephaniah that I'm going to keep, that one day there will be people from every race, tribe, tongue, and nation. And here's just a taste of what it's going to be like. People who normally would not be united are now united praising God. They're not uniform. They don't all speak the same language. But there's a a unity, a a unification, even in their diversity in the book of of, uh, Acts chapter 2. And then as the story unfolds, every other group gets this same experience, and the disciples understand that that means God has said they're going to be part of the church, and they're going to be part of the church, and they're going to be part of the church. So that's what's going on here. The reverse of the Tower of Babel. And what does it do here? It says that they may call on the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. So the the purity of speech The taking away the confusion and bringing unity unity through speech is to the end that people literally, it says here in in verse 9, can stand shoulder to shoulder as they serve the Lord. So God is not just about saving souls. He's about reversing the Tower of Babel and making a people of every race, tribe, tongue, and nation. Of course, that gets picked up in the book of Revelation as well. That vision is always there before God's people. His salvation is not just a personal salvation story. It's about bringing redemption and unification and cooperation to all the various peoples of the earth. It's a reversal of the Babel story. It's also the great coming home story. That's verse 10. From beyond the rivers of Cush, and I It seems that probably the reference there is not particularly to Cush out of all the nations, but it's a way of saying from really far away. Because most people that lived in the land of Israel knew that Cush was way down there somewhere. It's ancient Ethiopia. But they don't necessarily know much of what's down there. So it's a way of saying no matter how far you can think, even places you've heard about, you've never seen, God is going to bring his scattered people, the remnant, even though the exile has happened, God is not done, and God is going to bring back his people. It it is interesting how many stories and how many of the the richest stories we have are these coming home stories. And the, the Bible tells us that the gospel is the ultimate coming home story. 
God is going to say to a people who've been outcast, who've been exiled, you're coming home. And again, you trace this theme through the Bible. That's what happens actually in the garden. God's people are exiled from his presence. You may not think of it that way because the Bible doesn't use the word exile, but that's exactly what happens. They have his presence in the garden of Eden. That's what makes the garden such a beautiful place. And God, even though he exiles them from the garden, he doesn't give up on his people. He continues to be with them. The heart of the covenant is, you will be my people and I will be your God and I will be with you. And the tabernacle, which travels with God's people throughout the wanderings in the desert under Moses, the tabernacle is there set up right in the middle of all the tents of the people of Israel to show God is determined to be with his people. Even when David is able to begin um, settling in Jerusalem and he wants to build a temple, why does he want to build a temple? Because he says God's, uh, God's been traveling around in a tent. And it's not right that I'm here in a palace and God's still in a tent. He understands the goal is for God to be with his people. So David says, I'm going to build him a house. And Nathan the prophet says, awesome, do that. And then God speaks to Nathan that night in a dream says, listen, I didn't ask anybody to build me a house. Until my people are established, until their house is secure, I don't need a house. I've been the vagabond God traveling around with my people, and I'm content to keep doing that. And what do you see when Jesus comes? John chapter 1 says that Jesus, the word, came, and most translations say dwelt among us, but it's literally the Greek word tabernacled among us. So the idea that Jesus, God with us, that Emmanuel promise that Isaiah speaks about, Jesus comes and he dwells with us, among us. And he calls people from all over the place home. Now, some of the Jewish leadership isn't too keen on this idea, right? They don't like the idea that he's going to Samaria and welcoming people. And he's going to Gentile places and inviting people, welcoming people. But this is always what God's program has been about. Calling people who've been scattered, who've been exiled, home. And it's one of the ways even to think about sin. Sin separates us. It exiles us. And God says, part of my restoration, part of my healing, part of the gospel means coming home. Coming home. The other thing that we see in this is the healing of shame. Now, you know, Brene Brown has some great stuff on shame. Here's, here's for me, the best way to think about shame. Shame is the satanic counterfeit of humility. What do I mean by that? Well, true humility is a proper self-assessment. Pride and shame are both improper self-assessments. The satanic counterfeit of true humility is shame and pride, but particularly shame. Shame seems more spiritual because you're like groveling in the dust saying nobody can look at me. Shame is different than guilt, you understand. Guilt is I've done the wrong thing. Shame is I am the wrong thing. Right? And it's powerful. And in a lot of ways, the culture you live in is more about shame than about guilt. Modern people were worried about guilt. Postmodern people feel inadequate for everything. And that's shame. 
And again, the question is, what does God think of when he thinks of you? And why? So one of, the, one of the ways you know that shame is powerful in your life is if you have this vague sense that I don't measure up, that God's disappointed with me, that God doesn't want to think about me. But when I ask you why, you don't have a good answer. I had a counselor tell me that one time, and it was very insightful. He's like, you know, you're 30 years old, and you're still not married. What's the deal? I was like, oh, <laughs> we're going there? <laughs> and, and as we began to explore, he's like, he begins to explore, like, you know, why, why don't you ask this girl out or that, that girl? And I had no good answer. He said, well, you're under a cloud of shame. You need to figure that out. That's not what I wanted. I wanted him to tell me what I needed to do, right? But it was very insightful. So what does God say here about shame? He talks a lot about it, doesn't he? Now, here in verse 11, like, there is proper shame. Like, they've done deeds which are shameful. They've turned away from God. They've put their love that should be directed at God to other things. They've tried to take care of themselves. All these things are properly shame-inducing. But God says, I'm going to heal your shame. You will not be put to shame because of the deeds which you deserve to be ashamed of. Now, he doesn't tell us exactly how. We know that in the cross that part of what happens with Jesus is he takes on shame. He doesn't just take punishment like in a cold clinical way. Colossians chapter 2 says that he endured shame on the cross and that as he did that, he gave public humiliation to the powers and the principalities. Like shame was very much part of what was going on at the cross as he was stripped as he was beaten, so that Isaiah 53 says his appearance wasn't even that of a man anymore. He'd been so beaten to a pulp. And people walked by and cast shame at him, didn't they? So they said, you know, where's your God? He could save you if he loved you. So those are all taunts about shame. They're not about you're guilty, though they thought that as well. But, but really what Jesus experiences, the taunting, is about shame. God doesn't love you. God doesn't care about you. You're inadequate. You don't have power. You said you could save other people. You can't even save yourself. Do you see that? And Jesus took it all. Because the cross would be incomplete if he didn't experience the full depth of shame as part of his sacrifice for his people. So don't ever think of the cross as just a kind of cold, surgical, legal transaction. It was full of shame. And Jesus took it. He took it. God speaks here. You know, I think there's a weird verse in 18. Um, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you no longer will suffer reproach. And the yous there, I think, are two different yous. The commentators, you read the different Bible scholars about that verse, and they're all kind of have different ideas. But here's what I think is saying there. Is the people that just go through the rituals, go through the motions, they, they, they don't enjoy the festivals, the religious festivals. They're kind of annoyed because they can't do business on festival days and they, they just aren't into it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take them out of here. When I purify my people, part of what that means is my true people are the ones who are going to enjoy 
my glory and being with me. And instead of saying, oh, the Sabbath, oh, it's so annoying, they're going to say, oh, one day in seven to work on my love relationship with God? Awesome. What a gift. It's a very different way. Now, I don't, didn't mean to bring a bunch of shame on you because I don't use the Sabbath very well either. <coughs> but that's what it's for. That's what it's for. God says, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you one day in seven. Remember what Jesus said? Was man made for the Sabbath or the Sabbath made for man? Sabbath was made for man because you need one day in seven to focus on who God is and how much he loves you. Well, healing of shame is going to happen. And it'll involve God's people being restored and renewed as the key for the healing of the whole earth. Verse 19 and 20, it talks about uh, renown in all the earth, that what God does for his people is going to spill over and affect the whole earth. So what should our response be? Well, back up in verse 14. Before God tells us that he's going to sing over us, he tells us that we should sing. We should sing. Because it's worth singing about. Like, if the gospel doesn't make you sing, then you don't get the gospel. Or else there's something seriously wrong. And that could be true. It's worth exploring. Because the proper response should be exulting and singing with all our hearts. And again, there's a question we should ask. Has anything ever made you want to sing? I mean, the way verse 14 and 15 are connected, it, it seems that there's a reason, a rationale given for singing. You know, it's one of the reasons that we sing a lot of hymns in RUF. Because we think it's important when we sing to actually have songs that remind us of why we should sing. Right? Instead of just singing. It's hard to wump up love for God. And so God doesn't just say, sing. He says, sing aloud, rejoice and exalt. But look at verse 15. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies, and the King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. Sing about that. Sing about that. That's worth singing about. And then he also says, fear not. Fear not. Don't let your hands hang limp. There's some translations that translate it more literally that way. I love that image. One of the reasons I love that image is because Wendy and I always will think of Isaac, our sweet little boy. When he was little, if, you would, if he would be disappointed, he would literally go like this <laughs> and trudge away with his hands hanging limp. And ever, ever since, like whenever I read that, that kind of phrase in the Bible, I just think of that. It's like there's no hope. It's not sadness. It's despair. Now listen, I, I want to say this carefully. Sadness is appropriate in a broken world, but we are to fight against hopeless despair that would make you just go around with your hang, head, hands limp. Now, I'm not dismissing, you know, chemical imbalance issues that lead to hopeless despair sometimes, but hopeless despair is not what God wants from his people. He says, fear not, don't let your hands hang limp. Do battle against your fear and unbelief. Do battle against the brokenness of your mind and your body, maybe with drugs if you need. But don't let your hands hang limp. Don't be so afraid that you feel that there's no hope because the Lord, the mighty warrior, is in your midst. 
He will quiet you with his love. Rejoice over you with singing. That's where we go next. So the gospel's bigger. It's not just a personal salvation story. It's worth singing about. It's, it's truth that we should use to battle fear and unbelief. But it's better than we think. It's even better than that. Because God is crazy about his people. Verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Let's break this down. He's in our midst. Don't pass over that too quickly. For a sinful people, God is in your midst is a remarkable thing. The whole Old Testament sacrificial system was about showing God's people that even though your sin makes you ugly in my presence, I will provide what's needed so that I can be in your midst. I'm going to cover over your sin, but that's not the ultimate solution I have planned. The ultimate, the ultimate redemption is Jesus who's come and he will take on everything that makes you ugly in my sight and I will judge it and deal with it and then he will give you everything that makes you beautiful in my sight, his righteousness, so that I can dwell in your midst. The ultimate goal of the Bible is not just so that you're beautiful. It's so that you can be beautiful with God, so that he can be with you. That's the whole heart of the covenant. I will be your God, you will be my people, and we will dwell together forever. Do you ever wonder what it was like to walk in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden with God? You're going to get that one day. You're going to get that one day. He's in our midst. It's the point of the garden. It's the point of the tabernacle. It's the point of the temple. And it's the point of the city to come. Where his presence is going to be so spectacular, they won't need a sun or a moon. Because his light will light up the whole city. But do you understand? We're there with him. And then he'll quiet us with his love. Now this is interesting. Because almost everywhere the Bible talks about God's love, it uses a Hebrew word, hesed. Which is a great word. Sometimes it's translated loving kindness. It means covenant love. It's that special love where God's married himself to his people. But here, actually, it's a different Hebrew word. It's a Hebrew word that speaks of the love Jacob had for Rachel. That's a pretty passionate love. Like he asked her father, how long do I have to work for you? What was it? Seven years. Then he gets tricked, right? He goes to bed. He thinks it's Rachel. And in the morning, it was Leah. It's one of the most amazing verses in the, uh, in the Bible. <laughs> Like, literally, it says, in the morning, behold, it was Leah. <laughs> yeah. That's it. Tim Keller has a great, a great sermon on that, by the way, if you've never heard it. He says, we're always going to bed thinking that we're with Rachel, and then behold, it's Leah. And that's part of the essence of sin, right? Well, like, he's like, okay, I still, like, my love for Rachel is so strong. What do I got to do? And he's like, you got to work seven more years, and he does. Like... I don't know. Think about somebody that would work 14 years just to have your hand. And is that, is that what God thinks about you? 
That's what it says here. When it says he'll quiet you with his love, it's not he will quiet you because he, you know, basically made a deal and he's got to follow through on it. No. He's not compelled. He's giddy with love. Passionate with love for his people. He will quiet you with his passionate love. And then he rejoices over us with singing. God breaks out in song over you. Can your heart get around this image? It's hard for me to get around this image. Because I think, like, if you rejoice out loud singing, like, it's hard not to think that you're a little foolish. You know, I, I tell, you know, guys sometimes, like, there's no way to ask a girl out for coffee or for lunch and not tip off that you might be interested. You can try and make it as low-key as possible, you know, but there's something, like, and you just got to embrace it. Like, there's no way to, like, be kind of walking down the street and then just break out into singing without everybody going, like, what's going on? <laughs> and in, in a sense, that's what's going on here. Like, God's going to rejoice over you with singing, and he doesn't care who hears. Actually, he wants everybody to hear. What would that be like? Can you imagine if you were, like, walking across campus, somebody saw you and just broke out and singing. Like, that would cause a stir, wouldn't it? Yeah. What's that? Well, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Isn't that what we love about him, though, right? Yeah. You know, one of the, one of the best things about being a pastor of college students is you get to do a lot of weddings. And uh, pastors have the best place to stand in a wedding because... You're standing next to the groom, and you're right next to him when the door opens and the bride first comes into the room. And often you hear audible gasp. Like, literally, like, the breath is taken away. But as amazing as that is, and that's, that does my heart good every time I'm close enough to, to see that. I've never had a groom break out into spontaneous song. Now, so the bar has been set, all right? Yeah. I've had, people, I've had people write songs for their bride or their groom that they would sing, but they're, they're usually planned out, not spontaneous song. But that, that's what it's saying here. That's the image we have here. And it's more powerful when you see who he's singing about. Look at the kind of people he's singing about. Look at that. Verse 19, I will save the lame and gather the outcasts. Now think about this. Remember that question? What does God think about when he thinks of you? And then, why? The lame. That's the people who even in their own bodies are and feel inadequate. They don't measure up in some way. The outcasts are the people who've been cast away, cast aside. And God says, those are the people that I'm going to quiet with my love and rejoice over with singing. Now, here's why that's so important. The gospel brings a secure love that wasn't earned by your goodness, your wholeness, your greatness, that isn't what got you a relationship. It isn't what makes God sing over you. Therefore, it can't be lost 
when God sees who you really are. Of course, he already sees who you really are. But do you ever have that kind of sinking feeling in a relationship that once this person knows who I really am, oh, I don't know if this is going to last. I remember I had a, a friend years and years ago. I can't remember the exact context, but they were serving on some mission trip or something where basically she hadn't been able to shower for a week, didn't have any makeup, and he proposed to her on the end of those seven days. And that was always so powerful to her that when I was at my worst is when he knelt down and said, I want to be with you forever. There's something about that. Doesn't your heart resonate with that? That's what he's saying here. The lame and the outcasts. So, again, like, if God rejoices over you with singing, why? It's not because you're whole. It's not because you're beautiful on your own. But it's because he loves the lame and the outcasts. Now, if he loves the lame and the outcasts, then what do you have to worry about? What, what, what image do you need to maintain? What do you need to pretend about? You see how freeing it is? He rejoices with singing over the lame and the outcasts. And then just to say one more thing. You know, Jesus brings in the lame and the outcasts ultimately by becoming the lame and the outcast. Right? Because again, that's what the cross is. He becomes the lame and the outcast. He's, the, the, the book of Hebrews says that he was crucified outside the city gate in the place of shame. And do you know what Hebrews says? That means for us, therefore, let's go out there and be with him. Because here's the thing. People who've been saved and who follow a crucified God should go embrace him in the place of shame rather than trying to pretend that they've got it all together. See how that's a freeing invitation? It's an invitation that the proud can't possibly accept. But if you understand your lameness and you understand that you by all rights should be in exile, cast forever out of God's sight, then when he says, come meet me in this place of shame, because my shame is your glory. And you don't have to pretend anymore. Because God's people gather at the place of shame, outside the city of gate. That, that's an image we need to get for the church, for God's people. So, in conclusion, what do you really believe God thinks about? when he thinks of you. Maybe you don't think he thinks about you at all. And that would be sad because the Bible doesn't teach that. Maybe you think that he thinks of you and he's frustrated, disappointed. But the Bible says what he thinks about you is he rejoices over you with singing. Rejoice over you singing. Look, he says, he is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt you over you with loud singing. Man, you need to write down and memorize the I wills of God. Because they're really important for your heart. And there's three good ones right there. 
The Lord God is in your midst. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. You need to know that, and your friends need to know that. Whether they come to RUF or not. So that's the call. Believe this. Fear not. Don't let your hands hang limp. And there's a whole world outside that needs to know that this is what Christianity is really about. Let's pray together.